All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity we have to worship you wherever we are, that we can worship in spirit and truth is such a wonderful blessing. And we worship through the blood of your Son. And we have sung your power to save. Now let us see that power. Let us um, experience that power in our lives, each one of us, whether we don't know you yet or whether we have known you for years. We pray that you would move in us by your Spirit and lead us into truth. In Jesus' name, amen. It's no fun being powerless. No fun feeling powerless. And as followers of a crucified Lord and subjects of a, an, an invisible-to-us king, we can often feel pretty powerless here and now. We, as believers, are not going to be the most popular, successful, or influential people around. Just like everyone else, we grow old, our bodies decay, and we eventually die. We're dependent on someone we can't feel, and we're waiting on someone that we can't see. Makes us feel powerless. In my life, I've had a few different surgeries where I was put under anesthesia. And in the moments before you fall asleep under an anesthetic, you feel utterly hopeless, not utterly hopeless, utterly helpless, powerless. You're not falling asleep on your own power. Your body is forced to fall asleep. You don't know whether the surgery is going to be successful or not. And there's absolutely nothing that you can do about it. You are placing your health, even your life, entirely into others' hands. Now, as believers, we're not unconscious under anesthesia right now, but we can feel just about as helpless. It can feel like life is completely out of our control. This last year proved that. We have so little power to influence the world around us, even our own lives. And as Christians, it can feel like we're only losing more and more power over time. However, in reality, things are not as they appear. Things are not as they seem. Because in reality, we worship and serve a sovereign, supreme, all-powerful God. And no matter how weak we are, He is strong. Our God is in control of everything. And, and it is Christ's destiny to reign over all in wisdom, power, and love. And believe it or not, it's our destiny to reign with him. A couple weeks ago, as we looked into Revelation, we saw Christ ride forth from heaven as a mighty warrior to wage a just war on the evil that has permeated and so damaged our world. We saw him declared to be king of kings and lord of lords. We saw him win. Today, we're going to see more results of his victory as he not only wins the war, but begins to reign. So if you would, please turn in a Bible to Revelation 20. You're at home, get up off your couch, grab a Bible, pull one up online, 
I want you to follow along with me. Now, the interpretation of Revelation 20 is likely the most disputed of any passage in the book. It's actually one of the most debated passages in the entire Bible. And it's been my goal all along as we've gone through this book to, to try to cut through the confusing, controversial stuff so we get a firm grip on the main points, the big ideas that Revelation is trying to tell us. Now, I'm going to need to give you some details today just to give us a framework, but I'll do my best to not lose you in the weeds. Please do your best to see beyond the debates because no matter your interpretation of this, this passage gives us a powerful picture. A powerful picture. The main points, regardless of our interpretation, are the same. The goal of the passage remains the same. God wants to encourage us, encourage our hearts today with his supreme power. When we finished chapter 19, Jesus had just finished casting the beast and false prophet into hell. But if you've been follow, following along, you know that's only two out of the three of God's main enemies in this book. There's still the big baddie to deal with, the chief enemy of God and his people, the one empowering, enlivening, energizing all the other foes, the one whose very name means adversary, Satan. The devil or the dragon. Well, Jesus is going to deal with the devil here in Revelation 20. Not make a deal with the devil. He's going to deal with the devil. And this passage, in essence, is the final answer to the Lord's prayer of deliver us from evil. Look what John sees in verse 1. It says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now, this is a, a mighty angel. He's got authority, power. He says he's got a key and a chain. Not a keychain, okay? A key to open up the bottomless pit or the abyss, which is essentially a prison for demons or evil spirits. And he's got a great chain, which is strong enough to bind Satan. Look what it says in verse 2. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, our chains that we make here on earth can't restrain evil. Remember the story of, of Jesus freeing the demon-possessed man who with the power that the demons gave him was able to wrench chains apart or break shackles in pieces, Mark tells us. That ain't happening here. This great chain is stronger than the devil himself. As one scholar puts it, the abyss is his Alcatraz, and God is in complete control. God is in complete control. Now, if you look at our passage today, you'll see three paragraphs over the first 10 verses of chapter 20. And each paragraph 
gives us a different window into the coming reign of Christ, which has come to be called the millennium. And we heard, we already heard a thousand years referred to a couple times in verses two and three. But each section of this passage relates to that thousand year reign in certain ways. See, verses one to three describes what happens before the millennium, before Christ's reign. Verses four to six describe during the millennium. And verse seven to 10 talk about after the millennium. But more than just a, a structural outline, each window gives us a glimpse of God's power, this power to reign. So first thing we see in these verses we just read, before the millennium, before Christ's reign on the earth, God's supreme power will be exerted over the devil. God's supreme power has been and will be exerted over the devil. We, we clearly see this in the way God's angel captures and imprisons Satan here. Again, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now, I imagine the dragon must have fought back, but even if he did, it was futile. John just matter-of-factly says, the angel seized him, bound him with the chain, then threw him in the pit, finally shutting and sealing it over him. It doesn't sound much like a fight between equals. This is like me wrestling with my kids and body slamming them into the couch. They don't stand a chance unless I injure myself, which is always a possibility. But this angel just comes down, seizes, binds, and body slams the devil into the abyss, and then slams the door shut behind him. Now, question. How could this angel have this kind of power? Do you think he's using his own angelic power to subdue Satan? I don't believe so. I think this display of strength shows how much stronger God is than the devil. Who do you think sent the angel to do this? Who gave him the power to do this? Where do you suppose the angel got the key and the chain he needed? From God. Psalm 103 tells us that the host of heaven, the angels, do his will. They carry out God's will. So this was God's servant using God's power to do God's will. Essentially, God is so strong that even one of his servants can easily overpower the devil. God's power will be exerted over, as it says, the dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. But we wonder, well, what's up with the thousand years? This so-called millennium. What is this talking about? Well, this is actually the, the crux of the debate surrounding this passage. So let me explain a little bit here. You get a, a crash course that you could get in seminary over a few months. All right, most people agree 
that the millennium refers to a, a kingly reign of Christ on and over the earth. All right, it's God, it's Christ reigning over the earth. People disagree on how literal the thousand years is and when this reign takes place. There are four main positions or systems, you could say, known by extra long theological names. Don't let them intimidate you, all right? The names or nicknames basically reveal when you believe Christ will return. Yeah, all right? So first, you've got premillennialism. Premillennialism, which means Christ will return before the millennium. In the, if, now, if the final chapters of Revelation are chronological, like one thing taking place after another, then premillennialism is probably the most straightforward way of reading things. Because we saw Jesus return in Revelation 19, and in Revelation 20, we see him reign as king. But within premillennialism, there are two different positions. I'm going to use some diagrams, uh, Jeremy Rene's helpful diagrams here to help us picture this. Okay, so there's classic premill first, which, mean, which says that after a time of tribulation, Christ will return, followed by the millennium and what's described here in Revelation 20. Though people still differ on whether that thousand years is literal or symbolic. And then there is dispensational pre-mill, which tends to interpret things very literally. It adds a rapture of the church into heaven, generally before the tribulation, followed by Christ returning again in the, for the millennium, and so on. Now, this passage is quite well known thanks to the Left Behind series and other works like that. If you've seen super complicated charts of end times timelines, it's likely from a dispensational pre-mill standpoint. All right? The third major position isn't as popular today. It's called post-millennialism. And as its name would suggest, post-mill believes Christ will return after the millennium. How could this be the case if the millennium is the earthly reign of Christ? Well, Postmill interprets the thousand years symbolically as a time of kingdom advance while Christ reigns over us from heaven. So Christ's kingdom is going forth now to the ends of the earth through the gospel, and that will eventually usher in Christ's return to earth as king. Now, the post-mill viewpoint was actually a very popular stance until the 20th century, when world wars, holocausts, and more, you could say, popped many balloons of optimism. Finally, the fourth major position is labeled amillennialism. Perhaps inaccurately so, as ah, the suffix means no. Amil doesn't believe that there is no millennium, millennium. It believes in a present millennium. So they, too, would say the thousand years is symbolic of a prolonged period of time, but that Christ has already established his earthly reign, and he did so back in the first century. So Amil believes that Satan was bound at the cross when Jesus died. 
not bound from working on earth, but prevented from, as it says here, deceiving the nations and mustering them for a final rebellion against God. They still believe Christ is literally going to return to earth one day, but that the so-called millennium is already happening now. The kingdom is here among us. All right. Clear as mud. Now, I give you these details not to confuse you. Again, to give you a framework and to really give us all some humility here. Things are not abundantly clear. You may read the rest of Revelation 20 and think, aha, that proves this view or this view. Maybe, maybe not. But here's the thing. You and I are allowed to disagree on this. It's okay. Right? This is not what we consider a core issue of faith or a, a test of fellowship. Churches have gotten way off base at times by insisting on one particular view. And what we will insist on is a personal, visible, physical, glorious return of Jesus Christ. And by the way, all four of those camps agree on that. He's coming back. We'll insist that he, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and that he will reign. We agree that he reigns even now in some fashion and that his reign will expand. We all agree that Satan is going to get what's coming, that God's people will be exalted. As for the timing, the details, live as though Jesus is coming back today. Because he may. I love what Scotty Smith says here. It says, no amillennialist is going to pout if the post-millennialist is right. No post-millennialist is going to have his feelings hurt if amillennialism proves to be more consistent with the unfolding of the history of redemption. Premillennialists are not going to high-five one another for a thousand years in the face of dejected post-mills and amills should their view on these matters be realized in history. The good news is that all Christians are going to enjoy fully everything won for us by our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, no matter what our position on the millennium is. No one's going to gloat. Everyone's going to rejoice. Now for the three of you who care about my personal opinion and have stuck with me so far, I hold to a classic premillennial view, the first one we talked about, but with some amillennial sympathies and leanings. I do think that the, the thousand years is likely a symbolic number, like most numbers in Revelation. In this case, 1,000 would refer to an indefinite yet perfect period of time. But for now, I believe Christ will return before this long time period takes place. All right, sidebar is done. Let's get back to the text. Because again, regardless of when or how this takes place, this is going to happen. God is going to have Satan bound, or he already has. The point is, God's power is supreme by far. 
Ever since the devil slithered into the Garden of Eden, his M.O. has been to deceive. Jesus called him the father of lies. Deceit's his main weapon. But when Jesus reigns, he takes away Satan's weapon of choice. It says, he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, the question most of us have at that point is, like, why only a thousand years? Why must he be released? Like, why can't this be a, a life sentence, a permanent victory over the devil? We're going to see this release and just how brief it is further down in the passage. But as for why he is released, I believe it's to reveal how strong sin's grip is on people. We'll see that. Without Jesus changing our hearts, we'll always side with the devil. So let's rejoice that God's power is far stronger than his, and Jesus will defeat him. As John says in an earlier book of the Bible, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, that Jesus appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. Praise God, he does that and will continue to. God's supreme power will be exerted over Satan. We will be delivered from the evil one. But that's just the start of what we see God's power accomplish here. As we move into verses 4 to 6, the next paragraph, we enter the millennium itself, this era of Christ's reign. And God's power is, is still being shown off as supreme during this time. See, God's supreme power will exalt his holy people. God's supreme power will be evident in his exalting of his holy people. Verse 4 says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them, were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now, thrones have been one of Revelation's absolute favorite images to use. Thrones display authority, royalty, exaltation. But who's seated on these thrones? Seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. The text isn't clear who this is. Options abound. Could be the, the 24 elders we met earlier, Revelation, or another heavenly supreme court, if you will. It could be Jesus' disciples, whom he said in Luke 22 would sit on thrones one day. Could be martyrs who died for Christ and are here vindicated. Or it could represent all of God's people with martyrs holding maybe a, a special place of honor among them. In 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3, Paul asks, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
saints, God's holy people, that the saints will judge the world. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Daniel 7.22 prophesies, at the time the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and this time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Because of those verses, I tend to believe that this here in Revelation refers to all of God's holy people, including those of us today who claim Christ as Lord and have been made holy by him. The martyrs, who we're going to see in a minute, have a specially honored position. Look, it says, Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, even if the martyrs are more exalted one day, God's word is clear here and elsewhere that all God's people will be exalted by him. And we will, as it says, reign with Christ. Now, just pause for a moment. Don't rush over that. Whether this is a present or a future reign, we cannot even fathom how breathtaking this promised privilege is. Back in chapter 2, Jesus promised believers, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. In chapter 19, we saw Jesus then come to rule with a rod of iron. And we get to reign alongside of him, the king above all kings. Where are some of those kings and other rulers, queens that he rules over? In chapter 5, it said that the Lamb's people have been made into a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You feel small, insignificant, powerless, despised, or belittled now? You won't then. Imagine taking up King Jesus' scepter and exercising authority on his behalf. Feel unworthy of this exalted position, this honor? I hope so, because we are unworthy. Only the Lamb is worthy to reign. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And yet, He takes little fallen, sinful us, and he lavishes his love on us and washes us clean and then raises us to sit on thrones in his kingdom far above our station. That's stunning. We spend a, a good amount of time and effort trying to show how unworthy we are, how wicked and depraved we are, because our natural inclination is to be proud 
and we're not nearly as significant as we think we are. And yet, at the very same time, the gospel tells us of how significant we are to God, how much he inexplicably loves us and cares for us, how he even died for us. Hearing that, that we're going to be royalty in his kingdom should never make us prideful. It should humble us big time. Like God wants to exalt me? I mean, you know your heart. Would you exalt you? God does. Created us to rule over the earth, to have dominion over it all. We botched that up. But here, he's restoring things to how they were originally meant to be. What will it mean to reign with Christ? What will we reign over? The details aren't clear again. Maybe it's people born during the millennium. Maybe there's a remnant of unbelievers. Maybe angels. Maybe creation as a whole. Whatever the case, it will be significant. And it won't be boring. It'll be the best job you've ever had. And then some. Now verse 4 mentioned that the martyrs came to life and reigned. Verses 5 and 6 talk more about that coming to life. It says they came to life, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Now the rest of the dead it talks about there likely are unbelievers who will rise to be judged later on. But the saints get to participate in the first resurrection from the dead. Some believe this is the spiritual resurrection that happens right when we're saved. Others believe this refers to saints who have died, being alive, reigning with Jesus now. I believe it likely refers to the physical resurrection of our bodies, which the entire hope of the gospel rests on. 1 Corinthians 15 makes clear. But no matter what the case, we will be so blessed because of it. This says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, there are seven beatitudes in Revelation. I don't think it's a coincidence that there are seven, but this is the only one to add to the blessed is formula, saying blessed and holy is. Question, how do sinful people become holy people? Only through Jesus, right? Colossians 1 says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's who we were, Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
God's done all the work to make us holy through Jesus' death. Jesus took on our sin and essentially gives us his own holiness, setting us apart. And because believers are united to Christ, we will be raised from the dead like Christ. Once we've been raised from the dead like he was, to to new, glorified, exalted, eternal life, to say we'll be blessed and holy is an understatement. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Not only will the first death not hold us down, hell, the second death will have no power over us. None. Think of that. God has supreme power over death and hell. And he'll share that with us. And we won't be mere tag-alongs in Jesus' kingdom, just happy to be there. No, we have exalted roles set aside for us. Priests and kings. Jesus is the greatest king and priest. He'll share his roles with us. We'll serve under him. We'll be worshipers and rulers, servants and sovereigns. Now, if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior yet, does does this not sound attractive to you? Does, Does being loved and made holy and graced by Jesus sound like something you want? I hope so, and I I hope that you would humble yourself before him today. Like Everything turns on this, how you respond to Jesus. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, and and you call on his name to save you, he promises he will save you from sin, from death, from hell, and from the devil. And one day we will be resurrected to reign with him over the earth. And if you're already a saint, one of God's holy ones, what does this mean for you today? Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Doesn't that make you thankful? But here's another, like one of the biggest implications for us. Do not fear death. Don't fear it. Yes, death is still sorrowful for those of us left behind. Many of us are greatly missing people who have died in recent months. I can think of, of two really precious people in my life in the last month that have gone to be with the Lord. And passing through the, the curtain of death can be a hard, painful journey. But, but for Jesus' people, death is not the end. It's not the end, and it's the furthest thing from a tragedy. I mean, think about it. Death, if this is true, death does not ultimately kill us. 
It only literally makes us stronger. And that shouldn't just keep us from being afraid of, of how we might die. This should help us live differently now, to live boldly now. On that note, we also do not need to fear rejection from other people at all. You can speak up for Jesus, witness to others about him, even suffer for him because you know you are received by Christ and you will be vindicated one day by Christ. You will rise and you will reign with him. What can others do to hurt you now? This truth should really keep us going, persevering, giving us courage to endure and to trust the Lord. Well, even if the millennium sounds a bit like heaven, it's not technically heaven. Even though Christ reigns through it, it will actually end one day. But the good news for believers is that even when this thousand years ends, Jesus' reign won't. And that God's power will be proven just as strong after the millennium is over, as God's supreme power will extinguish his staunch enemies. God's supreme power will finally extinguish or abolish his staunch avowed enemies. This process has clearly already begun in Revelation, but in chapter 20, it's completed. Look at verse 7. It says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So for Satan's final act, he goes back to his favorite pastime, deception. Think of that. His first and last acts on earth will be deceiving people to turn on God. Here, Satan's final deception is a powerful one, as he is able to somehow convince many that marching against Jesus, the king of kings, who's reigned for a millennium, is a good idea. They're led to believe that they stand a chance against him. He's going to be released from his prison. will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. Now, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel prophesied about those nations, Gog and Magog. Some try to guess which modern nations these might represent in Revelation. But John's not trying to identify specific nations here at all. He's using the prophetic model of these nations opposed to God to say that Satan's going to gather people to oppose God from every corner of the earth. Evidently, there will be unredeemed people still around at the end of the millennium, and lots of them, enough that Satan is able to muster an enormous army. And they march on Jesus' capital city from all over the world. Verse 9, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That the saints are gathered in a camp gives the idea that they are at war, but they're, they're in the beloved city 
means it's not likely a literal camp, but hints that while they're at war, they're also at home now with the Lord. They're in the city. They're surrounded by walls. They're surrounded by God's love. They're, they're in the city beloved by God and under his divine protection. And as is the case with all the battles God fights in Revelation, it is a lopsided affair. A rout. It's really no battle at all. That's how instant and complete his victory is. They march up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's it. Whoosh! And the army's gone. Incinerated. And Satan's fighting days are over as well. Verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Lo, his doom is sure. This is arguably Satan's greatest effort ever to take down Christ's kingdom. And it's over in half a sentence. This passage proves God's awesome, supreme power. He is sovereign over all, and he will be completely victorious. Evil will be extinguished from the earth. Therefore, do not fear evil. Do not fear the devil. Do not cower before those who oppose God now. You know how it ends. You know the final score. We need not be worried. Imagine how deceived and depraved you'd have to be to march against Jesus after experiencing the blessedness of his reign firsthand for so long. Grant Osborne points out that in Revelation, the earth dwellers have again and again rejected every attempt of God to bring them to repentance. And now many of them are forced to experience the reign of Christ for a thousand years without a devil to deceive them. Yet when he is released, they all flock after him in a millisecond. And once again, join the rebellion against God. One of the purposes of this passage is to justify the necessity of eternal punishment. You can give people a thousand years and they still rush into deception and depravity. You can give fallen humanity a million, a trillion years. The outcome is going to be the same. Robert Mounts adds that one purpose of the millennium is to make plain that neither the designs of Satan nor the waywardness of the human heart will be altered by the mere passing of time. Listen, you don't need more time to get your life together. You need a savior. You don't need more time repent of your sins. You need to humble yourself now. You don't need more time to 
to finally get your act together and start living for Christ. You need to bow your knee to Jesus today and let him work in you today. I've got one final encouraging thought for you this morning. I'm indebted to Pastor Garrett Kell for opening my eyes to this in Revelation. God's enemies were described in verse 8 as the number is like this, or their number is like the sand of the sea. As we read that, did that ring any bells for you? Yeah, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be like the sand of the sea. Even long before Abraham, though, God made another promise in the garden to put enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. So throughout history, there have been two seeds, two offsprings at war. The very beginning of the Bible foresaw this as an ongoing struggle. The end now draws it to a close. And we have the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent gathered together and warring against one another. God's holy people, God's enemies, warring against. But there was the greatest of the woman's seed who was also promised from the very beginning to crush the serpent's head. He was long anticipated through the Old Testament, and one day Jesus came. He then died for sinners like us so that we would not be crushed with the rebels. And here, as he reigns as king, he will fully and finally crush the serpent's head, casting him into the lake of fire, and we will fear the dragon's wrath no longer. Garrett Kell concludes, the Bible is not just a bunch of random stuff put together. It's one story of history, God's history, weaved together for our encouragement. So be encouraged. Take courage. God's power will reign supreme as Jesus the King reigns supreme. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to this reality today. We know, we, we, we pray, we sing about Jesus' reign We know it in our heads. Help us to know it in our hearts. Help it to encourage us. Give us boldness to live for you. Do whatever we must do to bow our knee before King Jesus today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.